A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to a special discussion episode between myself and Tom Daly. This episode here is the result of many months of frustration, which myself and Tom have been trying our best to hold down, but I just decided, do you know what, maybe the podcast is the best place to have these discussions and to engage in rants on topics such as these. So, with that in mind, here's what we'll be talking about today. Tom is going to be talking about the curious and worrying attacks on education in America. He's going to be talking about the manipulation of history, the unwillingness to confront history in mostly Republican states, and the need to be honest with these things in order to come to terms with the past and move forward together as a nation. On my side, I'm going to be ranting excessively about Brexit, but I'm also going to be explaining it. So if you're wondering how it was possible that someone in Ireland would be so bothered by Brexit, if you were wondering how Northern Ireland factored into all this, and if you're wondering how I felt honestly about the decision to do Brexit, then this is the right place to learn about all this. I should put a word of caution here. If you're of the opinion that Donald Trump's presidency is the greatest thing to happen to America since the year dot, if you're of the opinion that Brexit is a wonderful thing and should not be criticised, and if you're the kind of person who likes to use the word woke in a negative sense or as an insult, this episode is probably not for you. And in fact, you might get very angry at myself and Tom for talking about these things in the way that we do. But I'd like to think that you guys, my listeners, are knowledgeable, educated, open-minded people who want to hear about these things and who won't be offended if we hold opinions that are different to your own. That said, I make no apologies. This is how I honestly feel both about the deteriorating situation in America and the catastrophic Brexit decision. So yes, you have been warned. I made this episode to get these things off my chest, and Tom is in the same position. So I hope you'll enjoy this episode, and that you'll let me know what you thought through the usual channels. Before we start, though, I want to let you know that this episode is not brought to you by any sponsor or anything else. In fact, I want to appeal to your generosity for perhaps the millionth time. You see, our podcast friend, Benjamin Jacobs, who runs the wonderful history podcast, Wittenberg to Westphalia, 
is in a spot of difficulty, financial difficulty to be precise, as their house was flooded, 80% of the house's floor had to be ripped up, the kitchen and bathroom had to be replaced, and insurance was its usual difficult self. They took out as many assistance programs as they could, but much of these expenses had to be covered by credit cards. Their situation wasn't great in the first place, as Benjamin's wife can't work due to physical and mental health issues, and they also have a non-verbal child on the autism spectrum. It's a very difficult situation, and I became aware of this through Twitter, and because Benjamin launched a GoFundMe page to actually cover all this, he is not the kind of guy, if you know him, he's not the kind of guy to basically talk himself up or to draw attention to himself, and he's the last person who would ask for help if it really wasn't needed. So looking at this nightmare and thinking about ways that I could help my good podcast friend, I thought the very least I could do would be to make this GoFundMe the unofficial sponsor of this episode. So if you want to help out Benjamin Jacobs, if you have enjoyed his podcasts in the past, and you think that these kinds of things are really unfair for a guy like him to have to go through, then click on the link in the description below and all that information I just gave to you will be available there and you'll be able to see for yourself what the situation is for poor Benjamin. Give him a hand if you can. He'd really appreciate it and myself and Tom would really appreciate it too. Alright guys, thanks so much for listening and I hope you enjoy this mutual rant between myself and Tom Daly. Hello history friends, thanks so much for joining me for this episode where I talk to Tom Daly, who you may remember from the American Biography podcast, and today we are basically going to rant, for lack of a better term, about everything America, everything Britain and Brexit. So thanks so much for joining me, Tom. Oh, it's a pleasure and an honor, sir. (laughs) Yes, indeed. So we both have a lot to say about these topics we have a lot to get off our chest, and I'm actually going to put a a language warning, one of those explicit tab things, in the episode itself, just in case a few F-bombs or anything else slip out. So if you're listening to this with kids in the background, just be aware. It's always important to make these things known before we start. So if you're as frustrated about these things as we are, you've come to the right place. Yes, okay. indeed. I, I think you're right. It's a, it's a very frustrating time for, for thoughtful, rational people right now. Everyone wants to tear things down or regress to a backwards-facing reality. Yeah, backwards-facing reality is a good way to describe it, I think. And for an, an outsider looking in at America, I'm just... Oh my goodness, I'm just wondering what's going on. I think uh, as an educator myself, and as both of us are educated fellows, it would be fair to say, I think we should talk first about the attack on proper educational standards in the United States. And I think especially in history, because I don't know about you, but anytime I make myself go on Twitter, I am often encountered by an awful lot of ahistorical nonsense, but also just people talking with no kind of awareness of history or really what it means. So do you want to offer your 
two cents there? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I just want to lead with the idea that uh, uh, saw a great meme that was a roundabout way of saying it's easy to make everything a conspiracy when you don't know how anything works. And that feels like it speaks to a lot of what you're seeing on Twitter and what a lot of people see on Twitter where people just create, you know, here's a picture of Immanuel Kant and here is a Darth Vader quote right under his picture. It makes you think this one person from history said something that they have absolutely no basis for ever even thinking. But in, <laughs> in the United States, particularly, um, this is becoming a more institutionalized problem. Now, I know you are uh, an educator, and I'm a bit of an educator myself. Um, you know, I, I've been a history tutor for about 12 years. Uh, I'm usually asked to help students prepare for advanced placement AP exams that high schoolers take here uh, for a bit of college credit. So um, I work on AP European history, world history, and U.S. history uh, exams, and I help students prepare for that. And, and these have actually been a uh, sort of a flashpoint for the educational disagreements um, that we're running into, mostly in Florida, where most bad things oh, yeah. seem to be happening. Um, mm -hmm. well, Governor Ron DeSantis there is trying to be more Trump than Trump to sort of boost his waning presidential aspirations, which don't look good at all. Uh, they, they've really, they've passed things there, like the Stop Woke Act, and what's <laughs> been dubbed the Don't Say Gay Bill, where, where they, they claim that they're trying to protect kids from being indoctrinated in things like critical race theory or, you know, the the huge gay agenda. But, you know, these are pathologies that really recently came to a head um, when, when DeSantis's uh, education department in Florida rejected a new AP test uh, for African-American studies. And they, things that they cited that made it inappropriate was that it talked about movements like Black Lives Matter, structural racism, uh, which has impacted African-American lives in the United States, which are things they deem woke, but also because it included topics like black queer studies, mm. which they also find objectionable. But it's a, it's a study of like a, an entire historical culture. And these things are going to come up, but they exactly seem to fit the general example or the general pattern that conservatives object to the way history is being taught. And it's two-pronged. The first is racial. And there's opposition to the idea that racism has had some sort of baked in place in the foundation of America and has been around since the beginning and that it's influenced the way laws and institutions were shaped. And this largely came to public attention from the New York Times 1619 Project, which was an attempt to provide an alternate view of American history by putting the African-American experience at the center of the story for once. Um, right. Which, you know, as an educated person, you, you'd agree that historians often try to do this fresh angle reexamination of a topic. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. Well, this was immediately put in the crosshairs of conservative media in the U.S., uh, and it helps feed that that outrage cultural grievance machine that helps get their voters to the polls. 
and, and it really took off. Uh, so they latched on to the criticisms of the 1619 project because some schools started to introduce some of the articles into their curriculums. They identified and singled out the obscure legal theory taught mostly in law schools called critical race theory. And the conservatives proclaimed that this was being taught in school and was going to make white children feel bad about themselves and bad about America. So it needed to be eliminated. And, and that's the first prong. The mm. second prong, you know, what, what really can only be described as the marginalization of the LGBTQIA youth, yeah. not wanting things like gender identity or sexual orientation to be discussed in classrooms. Now, now conservatives dress it up as, you know, we don't want to talk about any orientation or any identity. But it's fairly obvious that they have no problems discussing hetero lifestyle or cisgender norms. It's only alternative lifestyles, such as uh, homes with two moms or accommodations that allow students to use bathrooms of the gender they identify with that are problematic. But it wasn't, yeah. it, it, it hasn't stopped there, right? Like it's spilling over into criticisms of broader curriculum that try to teach students empathy and acceptance and toleration as if somehow this is going to harm children. And it, it's trying to, and they say, oh, they're indoctrinating them by encouraging these alternate lifestyles. So there's been a scouring of reading lists that have led to books being removed from schools, and in some cases from public libraries. And in most cases, these bannings follow a pretty clear pattern of erasing literature that focuses on trans or gay or black experiences. And these are predominantly the books that are being banned in red states. And that's absolutely tragic because at least in the US, schools aren't just educational institutions. There is the idea that, that the whole student is important. Not only books are important, but there's school clubs, access to counselors, nutrition assistance. These are all lifelines that schools bring to a lot of kids who don't have these supports at home. And these are the things that conservatives are targeting wherever they have control. Yeah, no, I, I completely get that. And it's the issue as well. Like if you're only looking at the parts of history that you agree with or that you like, you're going to miss the actual full picture, the full context of human history, which is often messy. And maybe sometimes you don't understand it, or maybe sometimes you have to take a second look or read more or whatever. But to me, look from the outside looking in, it, it looked like it was gradual. And then suddenly they were banning books. And I think lately, and this is less to do with history, but lately that law that came in, and of course in Florida, where healthcare providers or doctors, etc., were able to refuse healthcare based on, like, if they didn't... Like, it, the, the exact wording of it escapes me, but it's uh, amounts to refusing healthcare based on someone's I identity, like their sexual identity or that kind of thing. It kind of brings in, and of course, uh, access to abortion is a whole other issue, but it, it just God. seems like the, the education uh, discrimination almost is turning into actual discrimination very quickly. Yeah. Um, and I, th I think you're referring to, to bands that many um, 
former Confederate states have put into place that prevents youth from getting any uh, hormone or gender assignment surgeries, you know, under 18, which, I mean, to be fair, very few doctors were were actually prov- providing like sex reassignment surgeries to minors. Using the hormone uh, suppressants is something that's been shown to be important to transgender youth, particularly, you know, to prevent the puberty of the sexual identity or the gender identity that they don't believe is theirs. Yeah, and the lack of education around these issues can only lead to more ignorance. And in a way, it's willful ignorance. And like this ties in with what you were talking about earlier. But why do you think it is that Republicans particularly find a proper empirical analysis of history like so threatening to what their perception of America is? Well, as I said, I think a lot has to do with cultural grievances. It's a phenomenon that that has been nurtured by conservatives for generations now. There's lots of examples, but an early modern one is the Nixon is uh, Richard Nixon's Southern strategy in 1968, where his whole campaign used the Democratic Party's pro civil rights platform and their actions in the earlier 1960s uh, against them. You know, mm. where they're trying to achieve a greater level of equality for African-Americans, you know, the Republicans take that and use it as a bludgeon against uh, Democratic candidates in the South. So Nixon was able to, to harness sort of the white discontent and aversion to social change to swing the traditionally Democratic South and flip it to Republican. And, and that's been a constant in the conservative playbook. Now, many Republicans continue to see themselves as the quote-unquote real America, and that often boils down to white Christian. This is a demographic that feels they are being drowned in this new multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-faith, diverse America, you know, that's developing around them. They've been groomed in many ways to see these changes and attempts to foster greater equality for minority groups or to improve the lots of the underprivileged, to view that not as a rising tide will lift all boats, but as somehow an attack on their status as a form of persecution against them, which it obviously isn't. I guess you used to be on the highest pedestal when other Mm. people are raised up to your level. It looks like you're sinking. It looks like you're losing something. They're upset about losing traditional privileges and and not wanting to face the possibility of the privilege that the idea that these privileges weren't actually earned so much as they were the result of a society that oftentimes favors children that look a certain way. And they don't want to confront a history of a society of how society got that way in the first place. And, And perhaps and perhaps facing the idea that America got to be a place that favored them through misdeeds of their ancestors or the people that they've been taught to revere. You know, that isn't something they want to do, a a truth that they want to face. But the reality is that slavery mattered, that Jim Mm -hmm. Crow mattered, the redlining of like home mortgages mattered and other public policies that like perpetuate unequal outcomes that are in place to this day, they don't exist in a vacuum. 
the ridiculously disproportionate rates of incarceration of African Americans in this country isn't an accident of history either. It's no. all informed by our history. But but regardless of documented or empirical evidence, conservatives object to any narrative in which Americans were not the good guys and which portrays the United States as anything less than a great nation, despite a few hiccups, which have been totally fixed, <laughs> because that's the story they want to know about themselves, that they want to believe about themselves. Yeah. And I mean, just looking at all this and all the ingredients adding up, like, what do you think the end game is? Like, what what's the what's the goal for these states other than like forcing their views on others? Like, you're not going to be able to remove Unless, I mean, maybe that's maybe that's what they want. They want to remove people who are different or believe or look different. So look, I'm not a conspiracy theorist or anything. And uh, obviously, I, I don't know the hearts and minds of everybody. And I, and I like to think that most people are good people. H- however, yeah. Politico did a poll in 2022 that showed that 63% of Republicans supported the U.S. being declared a Christian nation versus only 38% of all Americans who did who wanted the same okay. thing. So I don't think it's yeah. a stretch to say that much of this seems ultimately aimed at moving the U.S. towards a more theocratic footing. That's what the Republicans seem to be after. There's a saying that equates the states to being laboratories of democracy or like places where national policies can be experimented with on, on small scales. And, and right now, the, the effect that the recent Dobbs ruling had, was, which is the one that overto- overturned Roe versus Wade, for instance, right. it's ostensibly turned, returned abortion to the states. But that's clearly not the end goal. That's not the end game because congressional Republicans have already started talking about national bans on abortion um, should they regain full control of more branches of government. Activist conservative judges have already tried to get abortion drugs pulled off the market by stripping their FDA approval. So I think they are going to tinker until they find the best ways to ban these things locally. And then once they have the opportunity, if they have the opportunity, they are going to try to implement them on the biggest scale that they possibly can. So, I mean, it's important for people to be paying attention right now you know, to the politics of things because they Republicans control the House right now. And, yeah. you know, the Senate is almost evenly divided. And Joe Biden has a very low approval rating. So, mm-hmm. like, we are not out of the woods by any means. You could, if you wanted to be optimistic, say, and I do tend to like to be optimistic, even in the case of America, could, could there be a danger of these attacks backfiring? So, for example, with Republicans and with, say, evangelicals, we might think that there is a, a uniformity of opinion. But even among some Christians, I think it's fair to say there are those that want to have access to abortion, as long as it's not egregious, you know, as long as it's done fairly and, and reasonably, like the, all of, I, I only met, bring this up because in the last few years we had an abortion referendum in Ireland. And in some cases during that campaign, you saw people who were, who were self-professed Christians who thought that actually 
women should have those rights. So am I a bit naive in thinking that? And maybe we'll just see the picture instead where residents of these states are cheering for the erosion of their rights. Uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I think there is a very real risk that this could backfire on Republicans. Mm. Um, I think you can already see that it's hurting them a little bit. Uh, a lot of their socially regressive policies are incredibly unpopular with the broader population, uh, especially yeah. around abortion restriction and, and their anti-gay policies. You know, many commentators, I think, rightfully attributed the GOP's failure to retake the Senate in 2022 um, as a result of overturning Roe versus Wade. And you even mm-hmm. see instances uh, of when anti-abortion laws are put to a, a plebiscite. Uh, as they were in Kansas, where voters needed to approve a constitutional amendment in order to strip pregnant women of their bodily autonomy. Kansans, yeah. which Kansas is as conservative a state as you can imagine, Kansas rejected that amendment. Yeah. yeah. Like, so that was the popular vote, absolutely rejected changing Kansas's uh, constitution in order to ban abortion. The recent mm-hmm. effort by conservatives to ban the abortion drug uh, Mifepristone um, was incredibly unpopular. You regularly see public opinion polls that show 60 to 70% of the population are against the GOP's conservative social policies. Um, people don't want to live in a world that the Republicans want to create, but therein lays you know, a danger. This is why Republicans have turned so vehemently against democracy. It doesn't yeah. serve them. They pay lip service to the people, you know, with their populist rhetoric, but they really only mean their people, as in mm-hmm. people like them or vote for them. But they never miss an opportunity to try and boot people off the a- active voter rolls. They're always pushing to make the barriers to voting high and harder to pass, you know, such as voter ID law, uh, voter ID laws. Uh, reducing polling places, stripping people who've been convicted of crimes in the past, but have served their time of the right to vote once they're released. You know, a lot of it they say is in the name of voting security, which while no human system is perfect, our elections have undergone a lot of scrutiny in the last couple of years and widespread voter fraud just isn't a thing. Like we would no, have found no. it by now. Yeah. You know, <laughs> but, but Republicans are always against any changes that could result in more people voting. Um, they're against yeah. mail-in ballots, early voting, against making uh, Election Day a holiday, against universal um, voter registration. And, and Donald Trump's big lie about the 2020 election being stolen is all part of that, too. It's mm-hmm. about undermining the faith in the democratic process, and that plays into their hands. I mean, without yeah. evidence whatsoever, look at what they were able to convince people to do on January 6th in 2021. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. when Trump inspired the insurrectionists to storm the Capitol building to disrupt the counting of the Electoral College uh, ballots in the Senate. And, and they clearly threatened the lives of lawmakers like Nancy Pelosi, even Mike Pence, who was seen yeah. as a traitor Hang for Mike just Pence. following the law. <laughs> Hang yeah. Mike Pence. They built a gallow. I mean, the the bottom line is Republicans are a minoritarian movement who have effectively used the 
antiquated political processes in the United States and used the federalist system in the United States, the, the system of federalism with a division of political power between states and um, the federal government to gain and hold power. Like, am I right in seeing something ironic in the erosion of all these personal rights from the party of freedom? Because they constantly trump their love of freedom and their desire for freedom. And it's like you said, I mean, freedom is, is what they want until it's freedom to speak about things they don't like or freedom to do things they don't like you doing. It's pretty telling. Yeah, I think it goes way past irony. It's closer to Orwellian doublethink, in my opinion, mm. at least the way they, they use their term of freedom. You know, uh, traditionally, modern conservative uh, modern conservatism uh, has been like a reaction to the New Deal, right? Where, where they see the, the yeah. size of government had grown and it took a more active role in establishing and administrating a, so, a social safety net you know, such as it is here, regulating different industries and practices. And since the, the mid-60s, though, conservatives have been all about shrinking the size of government, of, of cutting taxes, cutting spending, privatizing anything and everything that they can with the idea that the government should just get out of people's way, you know, that individuals know best how to pursue their happiness and right. uh, the best government is the one that governs least to use that old Jeffersonian chestnut, you know, and that, <laughs> that's what their version of freedom has generally meant is been a freedom from government, a freedom from undue and burdensome regulation and restriction. But, yeah. but that that's in the rearview mirror. Now there has always been a mystery to me why conservatives have been so grossly obsessed with regulating people's private like sexual lives and their medical practices yeah. whether it was you know the the opposition to birth control or interracial marriage or you know trying to make sodomy illegal uh you know these are all things they've done in the past or things like same sex marriage or, you know, drag shows or abortion or gender affirming medical treatment today. It's all on the same line of thing. But the scary part is they're kind of winning. There's been a right. decades long, a decades long effort to push the Supreme Court to the right. That's been successful. Yeah. And that means right now, Joe Biden and his razor thin Senate majority are the only thing standing between people and an authoritarian moralist state. You know, Trump, mm. who is the Republican frontrunner and is completely amoral, but he'll use whatever levers that are available to him. He's planted his flag firmly in culture war grievances. In his second term agenda, like he's laid out what he's laid out so far. He's talking about punishing doctors uh, who provide gender affirming care to, to trans patients cutting federal funding to schools that, in his words, push critical race theory, which isn't even really a thing. You know, he wants to punish schools who push transgender and racial, racial political content to children that, that's deemed inappropriate by him, I guess. You know, he's yeah. saying he wants to, to cut the civil service in the United States, which I guess means to cleanse it of the imaginary boogeyman that he calls the deep state. 
and make it easier for him to fill with loyalists. He wants minors to face harsher, harsher criminal punishments. He wants to restrict voting to just election day, limit it to just paper ballots, to require ID. He wants to execute drug dealers a la Rodrigo Duarte, the former president of yeah. the Philippines. Yeah, yeah, jeez. Uh, overwhelmingly, all these things serve to put more power in his hands or makes it easier for him or any other president in the future to weaponize the government against individuals or even companies. Again, look at Ron DeSantis versus Disney in Florida. It's a microcosm. Oh, boy. You know, Trump's rhetoric itself is terrifying. You know, like he's saying things like, I'm your warrior. I'm your justice. And for those who have wronged and betrayed you, I'm your retribution. Who is he talking about there? Yeah. <laughs> Who's he talking for? Who's he speaking for? That's scary. Zach, that's fascist. Yeah, it is. It's openly, it's openly fascist. But I mean, it's, I, I'm laughing and I'm smiling, but that's my way of dealing with something. And we'll talk about more in this line of thought later, but things that you thought were confined to the dustbin of history are reappearing and, in America particularly, like just to see this happen before our eyes. I mean, there's another thing as well we can touch on this. And in a way, this may actually, in a kind of bleak way, solve this problem. This All this talk of national divorce. Now, it was much more intense a few weeks ago, but it seems to be this uh, almost like a plan B that they have. If this rewriting of America doesn't work for them, then they'll just take off those parts of America that seem to want it, and I use that in air quotes, the most. What, what What's your view on that? There were pretty serious sectional tensions in the 1960s, for example, during the civil rights movement. But there was no serious succession movements. You know, I wasn't alive then, but... You know, the intensity mm. of that situation clearly comes through in video footage and archival footage. Um, and you can hear it in the stories of people who did live then. You know, uh, but I, I think it's telling that, you know, the ones trying to impose and at least partially succeeding in imposing their minoritarian will on the majority are the ones acting like victims and calling for a breakup of the United States. You know, people yeah. like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is the representative oh, who, who made the national divorce comment, they'd be a laughable buffoon if she wasn't so dangerous. You know, like, yeah. I, I don't think there's a lot to it. Traditionally, blue states like Connecticut and Massachusetts, New York, California, they all contribute significantly more in federal taxes per citizen than traditionally red states like Mississippi and West Virginia, South Carolina, or even Florida, who receive sure. far, far more in redistributed federal dollars than they put in. Now, mm -hmm. I'd have a hard time imagining those disgruntled red states would want to cut off the gravy train. But like dumber things have happened, clearly, like boycotting Bud Light because they have a transgender spokesperson for a second. You know, that that's one example of something dumber. But yeah, I, I don't want to undersell it, though. Like the regional tensions are really bad. You know, mm -hmm. there are states 
setting up what look like systems of persecution, denying pregnant and transgender bodily autonomy for their citizens, and denying them the full rights of medical care, like you mentioned. They're threatening individuals and doctors with legal percussions, threatening to find ways to prevent people from leaving their states, denying them the freedom of movement across state lines to where they can receive those services legally. You know, I'd be lying if I said I haven't felt an 1850s free state versus slave state vibe in recent years. And that's scary. Mm. Yeah. And I think that example of people traveling across state lines to bring it back to Ireland and the whole abortion thing, it was famously known. It was like an open secret that for Irish women, the only solution if they wanted an abortion before it was legalized was to travel to the UK. But it it kind of like seeing them trying to stop that. I mean, that's it's another level of persecution. And I think these are like all these these personal private issues. They do expose really serious fault lines between these two parties. But something that as a again, as an outsider looking in, because I mean, purely selfishly, I don't have to live with this. For me, looking at that, like the main thing that's coming forward is the Russia's invasion of Ukraine and how that has brought forward, again, ideologies and viewpoints that I once thought were confined to the past, like the America First Party, like, hello, 1930s, where have you been? It's yeah. the exact same name, the exact same ideology. Even the rhetoric is so similar. It's mm-hmm. so terrifying. Yeah, I don't think you're going too far making that connection. I, I think it was a self-conscious choice to adopt the moniker America First. I don't think it's fair to say that they are really isolationists the way they were previously, as opposed to them just having a different agenda uh, than America has had. You know, they like strong men. Like, they like Putin and Orban and Kim Jong-un. You know, there, there's something about the machismo of tin pot dictators that appeals to the Trump America first crowd. You know, they are mm-hmm. very ready to intervene in places like Venezuela, where they propped up Juan Guaido. Um, they are willing to overlook uh, murder to keep things nice with Saudi Arabia. You know, they are willing yeah. to keep punishing Iran and Cuba with sanctions. Or they're happy to look the other way with you know anything regarding Israel. Not being enthusiastic about NATO isn't the same thing as being isolationist. But but one mm-hmm. does have to wonder if Putin would have so bold, been so bold in the Ukraine if Trump had showed less dissension between the allies um, and, and hadn't been so mad at Ukraine. Because don't forget, the first time he was impeached was for trying to bully Ukraine into corroborating allegations of misconduct against Hunter and Joe Biden. Uh, who were his yeah. political, well, Joe Biden was his political enemy. Um, and he vaguely threatened to tie the aid the United States was willing to give to the Ukraine for that political, for their willingness to supply dirt on his political opponent. Yeah. It's so though. Yeah. So though you could, you could also point in fairness, you could also point to the fact that Obama did nothing when Russia took Crimea. 
and Bush did nothing. Uh, George W. Bush did nothing when Russia took South Ossentia, you know, to be fair. So Putin also was pretty, could be confident that the United States wasn't necessarily going to react vehemently in the Ukraine. But but overall, I find, I find American first objections to the money being spent in, in foreign aid to be laughable. You know, they say things like homeless veterans and hungry children here, but it's BS. They don't, they don't want to help those people either. We're in the middle of debt, uh, debt ceiling negotiations, which is a whole nother thing I don't want to get into, but they're, but the Republicans (laughs) want to cut 22% across the board in public spending. And that's going to hurt children nutrition programs and it's going to hurt veterans programs. So like it's all a lie. It's distraction. It's like, look over here, don't look over there. And it's the same kind of strategy we see. I mean, we see it a lot lately in Brexit Britain, which we'll get to shortly, but it's, it's, it's a lot of troubling patterns, but I think, Something just to to reassure me, I mean, what can anyone American in the left or center left or what have you, what can they do to deal with this? Like, how can they reconcile it with the America that they want to live in and what can they do to combat it? So, like... A lot of these these sorts of movements, like whether you want to call it, you know, Christian nationalism, white nationalism, authoritarianism, fascism, they're all they're all sort of the same thing. What we're talking about here, and, and all these kinds yeah. of movements are built on you know deep personal and economic despair. You know, for decades mm-hmm. in, in blue collar America, you know, union jobs that provided stability for decades are, have been getting outsourced. Uh, manufacturing industries in the United States have continued to shrink. Um, the number of people who can claim to be in the middle class shrinking. Economic insecurity and economic inequality has grown to a point where the top you know, 1% control more wealth than the bottom 90%. And that, that's, that's Gilded Age levels. And, and the Christian right has lured tens of millions of Americans who rightly feel abandoned and betrayed by the political system. They've been promising to fight on their behalf in this scary changing world. You know, there mm-hmm. are scary parallels to the, to the Christian right in America and the Republican party. Um, and with the German Christian church movement and the Nazi party, uh, you know, who used yeah. you know, received social instability and national crises to dismantle Germany's modern open society in the Vermeer Republic is difficult. So what can we do here to, to try to combat that? First and foremost, we have to stop underestimating the right. You know, right. stop denying what their what their goals are. You know, just because you can't imagine someone wanting that doesn't mean that's not what they want. You know, mm-hmm. believe them when they tell you what they want to do. Believe their yeah. Freudian slips, you know, when they say the quiet part out loud. You know, yeah. When Trump posts on his social media platform that we might need to terminate the Constitution, believe him. Mm-hmm. You know, for years, people who supported these politicians, you know, these right wing politicians said these people were running for office saying we'll put conservative Supreme Court justices you know, uh, on the court that'll over overturn Roe versus Wade. And, and 
people were opposed to the idea, but they also liked that that candidate wanted to cut taxes. So they convinced themselves that Roe would never be overturned. People who worried were the ones who were overreacting. Well, how did that work out? Mm -hmm. Stop telling yourself both candidates are the same because they're not. You know, it'd be a very different country right now if the people who won the popular vote, like Al Gore in 2000 or Hillary Clinton in 2016, had been president. I can tell you that. It'd be a very different country. You know, but we talk about red states and blue states as if they're unitary things. There's a lot of liberals in red states and there's a lot of conservatives in blue states. It's just that many states have been so gerrymandered as to make flipping a state a very hard thing to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can see overwhelmingly red states like Kansas, who you mentioned, and Kentucky, they have Democratic governors. And Georgia has a Democratic senators. You know, when it's left up to popular vote, these things, you know, are possible. But Mm -hmm. gerrymandering tips the scales. Democratic candidates get millions of more votes nationwide for congressional candidates every year. But every two years, like, it doesn't translate into seats changing hands all that much. The GOP has lost the popular vote seven of the last eight presidential elections, but have won the White House three times. Yeah. Wow. That's so damning. One thing people can do is register as an independent uh, if your state has open primaries, because if they do, you get to choose whether you vote in the primary Republican race or the primary Democratic race. Right. I'd encourage more people to vote against the most extreme candidate. Okay. That's on the ballot. So that would be me who is a registered independent. I would say I'd like to vote in the Republican primary and I would vote against the most extreme crazy candidate that's running and vote for a more mainstream moderate candidate. So let's get the crazy people off yes, the ballot. Yes, please. Can. That's one good thing. <laughs> but it's not but it's but it's Zach, it's not just about telling people to vote. They obviously they can't stop doing that. But more good people need to get involved. Mm. You know, more humble people need to get involved and run for things. Like I struggle with this myself and I'm hypocritical here because I don't want to no, run. No, me neither. <laughs> I have anxiety. I'm an introvert campaigning for public office involve talking to people and shaking hands and knocking on doors. And that's not my thing. But I do know if only the worst people ever run for office, only the worst people will ever get elected to office. So that's one major step we need to take. Fair. Yeah, fair. Well, I think on, on that positive note, we can um, take a take a little sidestep from America to their cousins across the Atlantic. That's this right. is where you get to, after providing us with all that great context, this is where you get to take a bit of a backseat and I get to do some ranting of my own. So get some stuff off your chest, because my side of the Atlantic isn't the only no. one. No. <laughs> all right, Zach. I can say at the outset here that, uh, you know, American listeners have heard about Brexit significantly less in the last few years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we are pretty insulated from it. I think it's it's generally not on the radar anymore for a lot of us. Um, but it's still a very big mm-hmm. deal in Europe and in, in Ireland. 
but maybe you can explain why Brexit bothers you so much. <laughs> okay, well, there's kind of two parts to this question. The first is why it impacts Britain, which is more obvious. The second is why it impacts Ireland. So I'll talk about the Britain part first, because I'll kind of, it'll lead us into the second. So why does it why does it bother me it's there's so many parts to this so i have i have some notes here i'll i'll do my best not to to drag it out too much but a lot can happen in the next 3 years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance united healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Looking at it politically, first of all, like Britain, by voting for Brexit in 2016, they voluntarily took themselves out of the largest trading block in the world. And this this was a misreading of realities and a misreading of British history as well, because this is British people who voted for it. There are, there are a myriad of reasons, which I will touch on, but seeing the UK as some kind of world power despite it not being a world power for generations you are basically you're not not so much giving the middle finger to the european union because what brexiteers will often say is they they hate the european union but they love europe and yeah these things kind of don't really gel now the the political harm is connected to the economic harm and it is fairly self-evident that when you cut yourself off from a economic trading block that you do a lot of business with, that that will create a lot of problems. And it's not just in the money, though. What I want to emphasize is is the political part of it, because, yes, you might think that it, it's kind of fallen off the radar a bit. I mean, understandably, my American listeners, you've got a lot, uh, you've got a lot to worry about yourselves and a lot to take in and absorb yourself. But I think there's something to be said for the fact that since it's happened they haven't really been able to make it work and even though there are parts where it dies down there has been a lot of wasted energy on this idea since 2016 and i often torture myself by thinking what britain could have focused on instead what it could have invested its energy on instead if it didn't spend all this political capital 
on Brexit. And now some some people might say, well, it was worth it because we got Brexit and, and that's what we wanted. But those people who say that they know what they voted for, I mean, I just don't really buy that because some people at the time in 2016, some voted because they believed in the message. And we will talk about that message in a bit. They believed in the message. Mm -hmm. Some people just did it as a protest vote to David Cameron, who was the conservative prime minister at the time. But it was never really clarified what Brexit would actually mean. And I think some of this is a political issue. Some of it is kind of dressing the whole idea of Britain leaving something and striking out on its own and making its own path. There's the kind of romanticism of that. But there's also a failure. And you can see even now conservative politicians are very bad at doing this. It's the policy detail. What would it mean for Britain to leave a trading block and try and set up shop on its own? Well, to actually understand that, you have to understand the different levels of trading block. And the public was almost, and especially in the last few years, when the actual meaning of Brexit has changed, they've been led to demonize some arrangements that had actually been really beneficial to Britain, like the single market. And they've been led to claim some kind of longing for less advantageous arrangements like free trade or even WTO or World Trade Organization, which is like literally like very, very basic. So I'm going to just run through a, a, a not a surface explanation, but a, as far as I can, just break down the few different types of trading arrangements that exist just to kind of clarify some of this. And for the record, this was never done before 2016. It was almost like they didn't want to bore the voting public with the actual detail. But as we've since learned, it's the detail that that, that actually matters. So you have a free trade agreement. That's You're removing as many tariffs as possible. It's very straightforward. You're trying to make trade as mutually beneficial as you can. But there are still those non-tariff barriers. So mostly in terms of standards, in terms of checks in terms of sanitary issues, these kinds of things. So free trade agreement has a removal or relaxation or commonality of tariffs, but keeps those things in check. Then you have what's called a customs union, where basically it's kind of like a free trade, except to those countries or maybe more than two countries basically band together to make other arrangements with other countries. So for example, the different countries in the European Union would be a customs union because they are trading on the basis of themselves as a single unit with other countries. Like you don't see France trying to make an independent agreement with the United States or Argentina or what have you, because they're trading as a single unit. And then you have the single market, this this thing that has been demonized, it's been upheld as something that should be left, that's just malignant. And it just shows that they don't really understand it. And that's what's really frustrating because a single market is, it's one of the most remarkable and like dynamic things that Europe has really ever created, especially considering its history of being at each other's throats. So a single market is an entity where not just tariffs, but all those non-tariff barriers I mentioned are basically removed. So it's all about ease of trade. It's all about ease of access. But it's not just trade. It's also about the free movement of goods and people and services. So, for example, and this isn't talked about very much. As an Irish person, I can go at this moment and just go and live in Spain or Cyprus or Greece. 
I can go and live there and work there and retire there if I want with very little difference in like change of like kind of any kind of like paperwork or anything like that. It's made as easy as possible to do those things because that's upheld as one of the values of a single market. It's the big it's the big shiny jewel in the European Union's crown. So practically what that looks like is like a, a harmonization in production methods. There's cooperation in sanitary checks. There's also like a, a maintenance of certain food standards, for instance. So I know if I get wine from France, it's going to be like made with as much quality and as much like basically safety as it would have been if it was made here. <laughs> Whether you want to get Irish Irish well, wine, I mean, would you want <laughs> Irish wine? <laughs> a bad example, but say say beer instead. It's the same idea. Mm-hmm. Now it, this it's because of the single market that. I in Ireland can get like blueberries from Morocco with, for the same rate and with the same ease as someone in France would, even though if Ireland by itself tried to do that, they would get nailed. Whereas France has more leverage, more population, etc. It's It's better for them. So the single market puts its members on mostly a level playing field, but it's because there is these great arrangements happening. And because of course, when any, anytime something has the opportunity for good, you also get chancers coming in. And that's why you need the European Court of Justice, which is basically there to be the arbiter in case there's disputes or disagreements over the single market. Now, now we're getting into the weeds a little bit here, but here we see Northern Ireland because Northern Ireland at the moment is in the single market. And there was this huge dispute over not having the European Court of Justice being in control and uh, like whenever Brexiteers talk about European Union institutions, it's clear that it's the idea more than the actual institution itself that they don't like. This idea of Europe interfering in our lives and everything else. Oh boy, what a load. But it's necessary because if you want to have Northern Ireland in the single market, the single market is basically owned and controlled by the European Union, of which Ireland is an integral part then you need some way to make sure that everything is running smoothly. And if there's a dispute, who's going to decide what happens? It has to be the European Court of Justice. That's the only way to do it. So the European Court of Justice will be absent almost entirely from day to day. And it's only when the single market kind of issues come up that it needs to intervene. So you wouldn't even notice it, really. And that's why eventually the British backed down with trying to get rid of it out of Northern Ireland. But just to go back with like sanitary issues, you might, you might be wondering like, well, why does that matter across the whole of Europe? Well, say you have a some kind of disease outbreak and you need to coordinate the members together to form a common response. A single market means that, for example, with livestock, there was this thing called the foot and mouth disease a few decades ago and it basically because of the single market it meant that it was much easier to restrict the spread of that disease because at every state level they had instructions and common cooperation and agreements in place to make sure that everyone was working together and making sure that these things weren't just happening there were no outliers that made the situation worse etc now that is some detail that's important to know and yes you could argue it's not very exciting or sexy or glamorous but this is the key problem with Brexit they emphasize all the sexy issues if you're a nationalist i suppose 
and they didn't sovereignty exactly yeah and freedom and everything but actually at the time in 2016 and you can see a lot of videos of this brexiteers were told oh don't be ridiculous we won't leave the single market we'll get our own special deal and britain will have basically have its cake and eat it and it's just only when they realized that you couldn't leave the European Union's institutions, you couldn't do your own thing while also being in the single market, you couldn't have the single market without the European Court of Justice. And it was like once they realized that, that's when they changed their messaging. And suddenly it was done for sovereignty or done for freedom. And there were people for sure who voted for Brexit because of that. And we'll touch on them in a bit because. That to me is also, that argument also to me is a a victim of all this kind of uh, like half truths and everything else. But it basically, it didn't work the way they expected. And as a result, they had to change the messaging. Now, Bloomberg, to take one example, estimates that Britain's lost £100 billion per year since it left the European Union. And again, this is entirely predictable. You leave the world's largest trading bloc, you expect to get... Like you expect to suffer economically and financially for it, especially when you have to set up a load of red tape outs from being outside it. But Brexiteers insisted in 2016 that Brexit would make Britain richer, they'd get cheaper food, they'd have better wages and everything. And now that they've pretended they've never really said this and incomes and standards have declined for for workers and for food, etc., And again, like you said, they focused on these arbitrary ideas like sovereignty to distract from lost income and lost production. And I know this is a long rant, but I promise you it's going somewhere. You have a you have a resurrection of trade barriers not seen since the 1970s, basically, when Britain and Ireland and Denmark joined the European Union at the same time. And there are claims that new deals and new opportunities await in these sunlit uplands was the expression used. But the erosion of standards is obvious in any of these deals Britain tries to make. I mean, look at the the vaunted free trade agreement between Britain and America. Like, I think it'd be fair to say at, a mo- at the moment, America is quite protectionist. It's not going to, reasonably enough, give up any of its advantages just because, like... Britain wants it to do so, and I'm not exactly sure what Britons are expecting, but they're probably not expecting to get the, the, the that horror show of a, ch- a chicken in a can that is often pegged as like the worst example of American food. No offense, American <laughs> listeners, but that's that's the kind of thing. It's 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 not exactly as straightforward as they like to claim. You see, as a consequence of all of this, the politicians put these things forward, but it's the business owners that actually have to deal with it, especially the small to medium businesses who used to deal from Britain into Europe. And they've been absolutely nailed by all this new red tape. And hilariously and frustratingly, Brexiteers try to be like, oh, the EU, the EU is being unfair. It's all it's all Ramoners, it's everything else, except the actual fact of it being the result of when you put yourself outside a trading block, you have to deal by their rules. And the EU's rules are famously tough because being in the single market is a very like attractive proposition. And if you want to actually trade with them, you have to follow. And like they have the leverage, essentially, and you're not going to be able to overcome them by flag waving or anything else. But I think it's the sheer dishonesty and these people claiming to support Brexit and speak against the Remainer elite. And 
actually being elite themselves. It's like the whole drain the swamp thing when Trump filled the White House with all his family members. Like it's it's patently ludicrous. But they went on, these people, they went along with Brexit for a kind of opportunism rather than ideology in some cases. Have you ever heard of Jacob Rees-Mogg? Unfortunately. Yeah, yep. so he's, if you haven't heard of him, dear listener, picture like the most stereotypical Victorian lost in the previous century type politician and with the accent to match. And really it's the accent that he hides behind. But this guy is fabulously wealthy and positions himself on very much on the Brexiteer right wing. But what he won't tell you is that one of the main reasons he's been so fond of the idea of Brexit is because the EU were trying to bring in new tax legislation in the years before 2016 to try and basically crack down on these offshore accounts and these investment funds that he happens to own quite a lot of. And then when Brexit passed, what did Jacob Rees-Mogg do? He switched those parts of his holdings and those parts of his income to Dublin so that he could avail of the EU's benefits for having your business in the European Union, while also skirting around most of the responsibility. So this rampant Brexiteer still did his best to take advantage of what the EU has to offer. And now we also, of course, in the lead up to 2016, you saw rampant anti-immigration messaging. There was this famous poster that showed like millions of Turks trying to enter the EU, even though Turkey's attempts to join the European Union have been basically defunct for the last decade plus, especially with Erdogan kind of eroding standards in a democratic and legal sense. And yeah, that's a whole depressing story in of itself. But the irony, in a way, is that all this talk of immigration beforehand and that Britain was going to control its borders and control its destiny, and Britain has even less control over its borders than it ever did before. But I think these... These issues of dreams colliding with reality have kind of created this increase in Europhobic messaging and anti-French rhetoric particularly. You can you can probably tell the English battering the French and making the French look stupid will probably always be a popular political message in, in some sectors. But it kind of is put there to replace any kind of substance. A famous example is when Liz Truss, who you may have heard of, but there's not much point in hearing of her because she was only around for... Mm. <laughs> I, I believe she lost to it. Oh, it was, it was a lettuce. But yes, good. good. Yeah, lettuce, she yeah. lasted less time than it took for a lettuce to decompose. So that kind of says a lot about her. But she was asked if the French were friend or foe. And she literally said, the jury is still out. As if we're back to like the Hundred Years War era. Absolute nonsense, <laughs> but that's just a measure of her mediocrity. All of this ideology, it just replaces any actual substance. And I think they have been exposed in the last little while because people are starting to realize for a while it was like, let's make this work. Then it went into the denial phase. Let's not talk about it. And now finally, it seems in the last, even in the last six months, really, this has been a very slow process. But it seems like people are finally being like, oh, maybe we should just join the EU. And now this comes in this comes in many different forms. Some people are openly saying, This isn't what I this isn't what I voted for, this isn't what I wanted. Other people are trying to blame other areas. But by and large, the actual opinion seems to be swinging against Brexit in general. All of these new arguments they try to bring forward, like there's a lot of talk of like EU policies and EU regulation and Britain finally being free of them. 
they the Tories had this idea that they were going to bring in this new bill that would basically get rid of 4,000 different individual laws that were brought in when Britain was part of the European Union. Now, can you imagine with your legal background, Tom, trying to, and, I do, and I'm, not, I'm not dressing this up, they literally just wanted to get rid of them. Well, yeah, I mean, that would just be, no one would know what the rules yeah, were. Yeah, and I, I, I think in the last few weeks, they've kind of climbed down on that. But again, you see the kind of hard line, and there's always a hard line in these arguments, but the hard line is kind of, said, oh, we shouldn't be backing down, we should be doing this. Now, this all, all of this talk, it always obscures the central fact. And in this case, the central fact was that when Britain was part of the European Union, it was an active part in making legislation. And in the case of these 4,000 regulations that were supposedly imposed on Britain, which, by the way, the House of Commons voted for, so not exactly being imposed, but... Britain only actually made objections to something like 2% of them. And that's not just the 4,000 that they're trying to get rid of. That's over the whole life cycle of Britain's membership of the EU. It's difficult for Brexiteers to understand, or maybe they don't want to present this, but separating Britain from the EU, it doesn't really work. Because for the last five decades, Britain and the EU were friends. They were partners. They worked closely together to make the European Union better. Going going back to just the political kind of strategic idea, Britain is now on its own outside of a political and economic bloc that basically dominates Western Europe, it's fair to say. So by putting itself outside of that, that is a strategic disadvantage. There's a good reason to believe that Putin was very happy when Brexit happened, particularly because Britain has been so distracted and so consumed by domestic quarrels since. As I said, imagine if they'd invested that political capital anywhere else, what they could have achieved. Mm -hmm. But still, at, at the same time, Britain has cooperated closely with the European Union in Ukraine, which kind of proves in the first place that Britain and the EU were natural allies to begin with. Those that might disagree will say, oh, we need sovereignty and everything else, but they don't really understand what sovereignty means. It is literally impossible in the 21st century to make any kind of agreement with any country without giving up a little bit of sovereignty. And they put such a high price on it while gleefully going for that free trade agreement with America. Like, can you imagine the high price America's going to ask for in return? Would that not be giving up sovereignty? Like, it's it's just not logical or reasonable to expect sovereignty to be preserved in this untouched, pure shrine, whatever it is that they have conceived of. It's just not realistic. And particularly any of the other agreements they've tried to make like since whether it's been with Australia or New Zealand or that more recent mouthful called the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership or the CPTPP which is a vast trade area of 11 countries that span the Indo-Pacific now this agreement would only actually add about 0.0% to Britain's GDP after having lost 100 billion every single year but that doesn't stop these same politicians who despise and loathe the European Union and all it stands for this doesn't stop to them saying how wonderful it is to be part of a trading bloc with all these opportunities and everything having just left the best trading bloc 
that exists. So before I get on to Ireland, any thoughts on my extensive rant there? Well, I mean, I, I think one thing that comes to mind, and this probably helps segue into the Ireland question, it, it just doesn't seem like the UK has a realistic image of no, itself. No, so true. It, they still think the empire is yeah. together or something. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the a lot of the the free trade that they talk about now, they've talked about for a long time, but it was when they were on mm-hmm. top, and they helped create international free trade, but from a position of strength. And and, and I think they just look terribly weak yeah. and disheveled mm-hmm. now. And you know, I, I think the border uh, between North Ireland and and the Republic of Ireland is is probably one of the places where they seem like the gang that can't shoot straight you know they they it's kind of like a clown yeah it is it's disastrous so it's kind of useful there that i talked about the single market and what it means to be outside it and that kind of thing but to simplify in in ireland itself and this is why brexit annoys irish people so much if they do understand it because some people like my parents, well, like my mother anyway, would rather just not hear about it anymore because it just seems like such a waste. But essentially in Ireland, on the island of Ireland, you have a border basically drawn from a portion of the north all the way across. So think of basically a chunk of Northern Ireland. If you haven't seen a map, just just to picture it, basically the the northeastern chunk of the island is part of the United Kingdom. It's been that way since the 1600s with the plantations, etc., etc., And we have a whole history in this country called the Troubles, where basically the Catholics and Protestants were at each other's throats, which is a a whole other topic for discussion for another day. But simplifying things, really, things were mostly okay in terms of like trade and, and politics while Britain and Ireland were both in the European Union, because troubles aside, whenever the two countries wanted to trade with each other, because they were standardized in the single market and because they had removed all these checks and everything, things were okay. There were no, there was no friction at the border or anything like that. However, in the lead up to the Brexit vote, people who knew better were asking, well, if Britain does leave the European Union, doesn't that mean that on the island of Ireland, there is going to be Ireland itself in the single market and Northern Ireland not being in the single market. And the EU is very clear about this in order to basically make sure that there's no dirty dealing or lower standards going on. You have to police that border to make sure that no bad things get through or, you know, the kind of thing you'd have to do if there were two countries side by side trading, the usual stuff. The problem is mm. in Ireland in on, on that border area, There has been a history during the Troubles, during that awful conflict, of basically one side or the other targeting any of that border infrastructure. And history friends, I should have added, this is Zach from the future, the reason why a hard border is extra especially difficult to contend with is because the Good Friday Agreement of 1998, which effectively brought the Troubles to an end and established power sharing between the nationalist and unionist communities, a part of the provision of the Good Friday Agreement was that there would be no hard border on the island of Ireland. And that was enshrined down and it was seen as that important, essentially because that border area had such potential to lead to conflict and escalation of conflict. 
And of course, you know what happens then. People who are watching this and who are aware both of how trade blocks work and the recent history of Northern Ireland, which has only been solved very recently and in even at the moment seems to be going in a sad direction once again, there doesn't seem to be any kind of awareness of what, what would be done if Britain left the European Union and was on its own. What would that do to Northern Ireland? How would you cope with that solution? Now, for a while, we had these suggestions once Brexit actually happened, because for a good two or three years, essentially nothing changed, because it was almost like they didn't expect Brexit to actually go ahead and succeed. So they didn't really have a plan for what to do about Northern Ireland. And then they started coming up with all these different ideas, like maybe they'll have these technological solutions. Maybe they'll have light touch checks, whatever that means. Maybe they'll have all all sorts of all sorts of these different pie in the sky ideas, none of which worked. Don't forget, you have a unionist community in Northern Ireland as well, who also have very strong opinions about Brexit. And I should clarify when the actual vote on Brexit happened, Scotland voted to stay in the EU, Northern Ireland voted to stay in the EU, but England voted to leave the EU. But because it was majority in the United Kingdom, Britain left the EU. And within that group of opinion in Northern Ireland, the Unionists voted to leave the European Union. And you might look at this and scratch your head and wonder, well, why would they do that when it would create a load of problems along the border? And yes, you'd be right to wonder that, especially since the unionist community in Northern Ireland, since Brexit has happened, have not really been able to reconcile their positions. And they've actually been something of a headache to the Conservatives in London, who can't seem to make them happy. And look, the reason why I'm doomed to know so much about all this is because I had to learn about it when I was teaching it in university. And when I was, that was what was called the backstop era. Now, we're not going to go into detail and explain all these because life is too short. But to cut cut a long story short, there's been different eras of trying to deal with Northern Ireland. Three in total. First, there was the backstop. Then you had what was called the protocol. And you have the latest one that's been agreed in the last few months called the Windsor Framework. And the solution to the problems I mentioned before, the solution to having a border in the island of Ireland was to not have that border, was to keep Northern Ireland in the single market and to do the checks between the two sides, because then Northern Ireland would be in a different trade block to Britain itself, to do those checks along the Irish Sea, which theoretically would be better and easier. It wouldn't mean any targeting by paramilitaries of either side. It wouldn't mean any escalation of violence, but the Unionists hated it because now Northern Ireland is in a different trading arrangement to Britain. Now, technically, Tory politicians have said this, Northern Ireland has the best of both worlds because it's within Britain's economic arrangement, its economic area, but it's also in the single market. And look at all these opportunities. But the Unionists don't see it that way. They see it as Northern Ireland being dragged further out of Britain's orbit, and they don't like that. This is uh, like it's it's something that's been very difficult to solve because nationalists and Republicans, etc., are fairly content with staying in the single market. They think it's a great opportunity, and generally in the last few years have been. No, I don't want to use the word docile, but mostly cooperative with the solutions that were proposed. It's really been the unionists that have been the hardest to please. And as a result of that, it's 
been a big headache for London and the Windsor framework seemed to solve it by making that compromise solution, as I said. But there has been a lot of compromise and a lot of, surprisingly, some people may say, a lot of European Union support of the Irish position itself. Now, we talked about this many years ago, Tom, when we did an exclusive episode for the Agora podcast feed. Where we basically, yeah, we talked about, I think it was 2019, which was the backstop era. So listen into that if you want to, yeah, a blast from the past. Oh boy. This difficulty, this long running struggle on how to fix Northern Ireland, it, it, it took a long time to actually work. And even now with the Windsor framework passed and the compromise position and everything else, the unionists are still not playing their part as a protest against what they see as Northern Ireland being dragged away from Britain. They're refusing to sit in Stormont, which is the basically the parliament of Northern Ireland, which takes the local government decisions away from London, as devolved government is wont to do. But with the unionists boycotting this, it means that essentially Northern Ireland's government is kind of in a standstill and not much is happening. And the unionists insist that they'll go back to power sharing if basically they have their voices listened to but it's been seven years tom and it's just been impossible to make them happy and it's gotten to the point now yeah uh, uh, like darkly hilarious in a way where you kind of get the sense that the conservatives just want the unionists to go away they are the last asterisk next to this whole arrangement and it means that Brexit can be called done in in air quotes, which, of course, it's not done and will never be done because of all the complications going along with it. But that's Northern Ireland, essentially. And that is really why Brexit bothers me so much. It's not just the fact that they went ahead with this and didn't really think beforehand about what it would mean for Northern Ireland It's also kind of a symptom of the lack of education and awareness on Britain's past in Ireland. Northern Ireland is a legacy of Britain's colonial past on the island of Ireland. And that might be controversial to say, but if the plantation hadn't happened in the 1600s, where a lot of Presbyterian, Scots and otherwise basically colonized that land, then we wouldn't be in this position right now. And you'll have to stop me before I get myself shot by someone unsavory. But that that's that's a that's a problem that Britons don't seem to want to deal with. Like, for example, if you asked them to say say where Northern Ireland is in Ireland, and they've done this before, they've asked people in London or whatever to draw a line in Ireland where they think Northern Ireland is. Some people draw it. Exactly right, but they would be the very small minority. Some people draw it exactly half in the middle. Some people draw it diagonally. Like it's crazy. It's crazy. That's that's interesting because you know recently Joe Biden visited mm-hmm. Ireland. Um, it was the twenty fifth anniversary of the Good Friday Agreements, which you know helped resolve a lot of the lingering issues of the troubles. Sure. And it was about uh, it's twenty fifth anniversary. Biden had been a part of uh, helping figure that out when he was in the Senate back then. The United States was involved at the time. Here it was played as, oh, it's our Irish president, you know, getting back to his mm-hmm. roots and all that stuff. But you know, it seems like over there there were actually some rather unfortunate hot takes <laughs> from segments of the right wing British press. Um, and what you're just saying about like Britain's not necessarily knowing where the line yeah. is, you know, how much of Ireland is Northern Ireland versus the Republic of Ireland. Would you say Britons need 
sort of a better education on Irish history and, and their part. Yes. Like in the notes, I, I literally wrote the word yes after that. But of course, I'll I'll go into more detail. There is, I think it's very similar in America, uh, what you were saying, Tom, about American educational standards. There is this desire, especially under the conservatives, to cover up or ignore or like kind of just pretend that the bad parts of British history didn't happen, as though acknowledging the bad parts and accepting them and calling them out somehow undo undoes all any of the good parts. You, It's this idea you have to have some kind of super British utopian version of history, where, of course... That's not like any any rational person knowing how messy human beings are, how occasionally bad they can be to one another will know for a fact that every country has skeletons in the closet. I mean, Irish people, yeah. it's it's very similar with Irish education and our presentation of national myths. And perhaps I shouldn't begrudge British people too much for not knowing what goes on here, but... At the same time, when the relationship with Ireland, the Anglo-Irish relationship, was really central to bringing the conflict in Northern Ireland to a close. And in that case, I mean, there was a Labour government in Britain at the time, maybe that says a lot, but there has to be empathy and understanding and compromise. And I think those things can be like instilled in in people when they are learning about the history. And it's not just like it's not just of oh 700 years of oppression by the british people in ireland and they took us over and they like you could go on listing all those things for for days but really what needs to happen is a kind of even just a, a basic realization of a kind of a, a timeline like the impact that british rule and misrule had why Northern Ireland is owned in the first place these facts that would make a very distinct difference to how British people see Ireland. Because, look, judging from the right-wing press and some expressions from, like, British politicians as well, there it hasn't exactly been very, like, reassuring. It, what it comes down to, I think, as well, is an acceptance that sometimes the country that you love, and you're very much entitled to love your country, but the country that you love is capable of doing wrong, and sometimes they do wrong over centuries and sometimes they do it for not necessarily very good reasons i mean you can hear the greater good example but when it's just literally a case of taking our land and taking our industry and literally stripping away all our native forests to build your navy like these are the kinds of things it would be better for british people to know and i'd like to think that if there was more humility and more acceptance of these facts then brexit itself Maybe if it had to happen, Brexit might have gotten smoother or maybe it wouldn't have happened at all because British people would have understood what just not just what the troubles and that conflict in Northern Ireland meant to Ireland and and Northern Ireland and Britain itself. But they would have realized the implications of something as damaging as Brexit. They would have realized the implications of that as well. And they would have been more accommodating and, and careful, really, before taking such a step. I hope that answers your question. <laughs> I guess it has me wondering, like, examples like this, like, is there a resentment, maybe, in certain segments of the UK? Like, perhaps they resent that they seem to be waning on the world mm. stage a bit, a bit, 
but perhaps Ireland is waxing, particularly in the use of, of soft power on the world stage. Yeah, that's a good point. Now, I should clarify this by saying Ireland has very pressing at the moment, very pressing socio-economic problems like the provision of healthcare, housing are two huge issues. But in terms of foreign policy, because Ireland is militarily neutral, because it's not part of NATO, but part of the European Union, and because geographically it is in a great position as basically the first stop off on the way to get to the European Union. And also in another weird way, I only noticed this the other day, when you see people in the European Parliament of the European Union speaking English, an Irish flag appears beside it because it's like, it's like known that because the United Kingdom isn't part of the EU anymore, they're basically speaking English. I mean, yes, for the sake of convenience, English is an international language, of course. But it's just funny that all of these contingent parts of the European Union, their citizens like strive to learn English for the most part. And it's most useful in a country in the UK that isn't even part of the European Union anymore. So if you want to avail of the benefits of your English language, then come to Ireland. I mean, sure, you can say that everyone knowing English means you don't have to learn all these different regional languages and dialects, but it is it is just interesting. That's just one very small example. But yeah, I think with the American visit in particular, there is a lot of love for Joe Biden over here, not just because of his Irish roots. And you you do hear Irish people, fair enough, taking the piss of Americans who like to claim that their great great grandfather's dog's friend was Irish. Like, but I, I mean, for the most part, even though it is a bit cringy, at the same time, we are proud. Like, there's the Irish diaspora is huge. Like, a hundred million people mm-hmm. around the world are supposed to be able to claim Irish roots in some form. So it's inevitable you get someone in in the White House again that that would be like that. And we are reassured by that. But it's also the fact that almost almost despite himself, and maybe it's because Joe Biden seems a bit more gaff prone, he seems to kind of speak his mind. But his language about British people, and especially recently that when he said that he wanted to go to Northern Ireland to make sure that Britain didn't screw around with with, uh, Northern Ireland and that it remembered what it was supposed to do, that kind of thing, like... We we are reassured by that. Now, you could say justifiably that Ireland is standing on the shoulders of its friends, whether that's because we rely on Britain to defend our airspace pretty much, or because we know that if we ever were attacked, there'd be an awful lot of foreign opinion in support of us. But that is a kind of a, a consequence, I think, of Ireland's colonized history and also of its insistence, almost rigorously so, of being neutral to sometimes in the infamous extent, like in when Hitler died, you had Eamon de Valera offering condolences because he was neutral. That was, yeah, that was horrendous. But a little tone deaf. Oh, yeah, tone deaf. But the less said about him, the better. I'm not a huge fan of de Valera, another story for another day. But it, it, I think Ireland is finally now taking advantage of all of these benefits it has. There is still an awful lot to be done. And I think particularly with its, it's basically ca- capitalism run wild on a, on a, 
on a small island, but on a massive scale, a lot of money sloshing around. You know, the usual story, Tom. People not doing what they're Mm -hmm. supposed to, privatization for bad reasons, all these kinds of things, which basically means land is a premium here and the healthcare service is chronically underinvested in and oversubscribed. We also have a, a population that is growing an awful lot. Now, this comes back to the whole British relationship with us here. Our population on the whole island still hasn't gotten as high as it did before the famine in the 1840s. So that should go to show you the actual scar and the impact that that had. Now, we don't need to get into that debate about, oh, the Irish famine was a genocide or anything like that. It wasn't. Like, it, it just wasn't, okay? But it it does go to show that there are a lot of things that British people aren't really aware of about what happened here or what they did here or didn't do here. So... Yeah, a bit of education would go a long way, but I think the the soft power, the rise of Irish soft power, it's kind of reminiscent of New Zealand's soft power in a way. You have a country that is strategically safe in many respects, but one that is also seen to be generally a force of good in the world. And I think our neutrality definitely helps with that. I think the last thing we wanted to bring up in this segment, getting back to Britain's historicity of it, um, we recently uh, had a coronation of King Charles III mm-hmm. um, in that country. Um, has the death of Elizabeth II, you know, drawn attention now, and this coronation drawn attention now to? Sort of the absurdity of the uh, the British monarchy? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I mean, you only have to look. I don't know how how much you were paying attention to the coronation. I didn't watch it or anything myself. I kind of just got the some of the more difficult highlights afterwards, such as those. Yeah, the, the clips yeah, are hard to avoid. It's just, yeah. it does seem a bit obscene, this guy riding down a road in a golden carriage when... There's so many problems in Britain, so many socioeconomic problems, so much poverty, people relying on food banks. I mean, it's like it is here in in many respects with housing and health, but on an even grander scale. And to see this guy riding through a golden carriage purely because of his blood, it just it seems bizarre to me. Now, there are people in Ireland who think the monarchy is fascinating, like in the United States, no interest in being ruled by them. Hell no. But no. certainly it's interesting. It's a it's a presentation. It's a it's not a facade. What's what's the term I'm looking for? It's a pageant. The the kind of approval for the British monarchy really depends on the perception of how it distinguishes Britain. I mean, Queen Elizabeth was a great example of that because she had been around for so long. She had transcended generations. She transcended political opinion. She was seen as good and dutiful. But there was always this idea of what would happen when she did pass away and the idea that things would never really be the same again. And I do think Britain is grappling with that. They're grappling with the fact that no one will ever be like Queen Elizabeth She'll ne- no one will ever mean as much. Charles is never going to mean as much to British people as the Queen did. And even monarchists who say that the monarchy is great and celebrate the historically significant crowning of a new king, they'll know that it's it's not the same as it used to be. And that's even just geographically. You see a lot of countries supposedly under the Commonwealth, under the British monarchy, The likes of Jamaica probably being the most famous example, but other minor island nations wanting to 
strive for Republican government and basically cut all ties. And that's been sort of loud in Australia as well. Yeah. Is, is more yeah. And that'll be interesting to see what way those things go. Um, but I think it could be now this could be it's probably controversial to say, but I think in the main, there's a more favorable view of the monarchy in those larger former dominions, such as Canada, Australia, New Zealand, etc. There's a more favorable view because there is a less close association of the monarchy with slavery, for instance, which Jamaica would have a very painful, passionate memory of. So these things all need to be considered. And that ties in again to the education thing for those Britons not really being able to understand why Jamaicans would want to cut ties with such a wonderful institution. It will take a bit of time to maybe kind of educate yourself on why that is and why Britain isn't necessarily and hasn't necessarily been a force of good in the world if you didn't happen to live in Britain itself. So I think there is a long way to go. But yeah, to me, the monarchy, like now this could just be because I'm very fond of our current president, Michael D. Higgins. I think he's a great cultural and linguistic figure and a great representative, a great moral character as well. And there is an argument in Britain that if you get rid of the monarchy, we'll just get Boris Johnson as the president of Britain. So is that not worse? And maybe Charles won't be so bad. I mean, he does seem to be more open to acknowledging the royal family's links with slavery and that kind of thing. So that is a net positive. What's your take? I mean, it just doesn't seem necessary. I mean, I think there's other European nations that still maintain there is a monarchy but it's not even they don't even give it the the pump like it's it's a cultural institution sure. you know it's it's a magnet for tourism and the like like that but there's no reason to pretend and that's what it is in britain mm. pretend that it's anything significant in the real world that the prime minister goes and and meets with the king that the king gives a speech to parliament like the parliament doesn't write it for yeah him. there's this this unnecessary pageantry it, it's wasteful public funds shouldn't be going to the richest family in the country yeah. like i'm sorry like elizabeth seemed like a fine woman maybe she deserved a public funeral but it's not like the Windsors couldn't afford. I know. <laughs> um, yeah, fair. It, it just it, it seems like a waste. Even though, uh, to his credit, Charles did try to slim down the coronation. From my understanding, how long is he going to reign realistically before they're going to need to do it again? Well, that's it. And that all feels like sort of a waste. I think monarchy itself is repugnant yeah. um, from a small R Republican, you know, perspective. It's just not necessary. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's, uh, it's antiquated. Anti-democratic. It's, anti-democratic was exactly the word that was coming out of my mouth <laughs> next. The, all I ever hear is the, uh, oh, the pomp, the pomp. Like that in of itself is worth maintaining. Yeah this institution mm. all its you know privileges and wealth and ostentatiousness and you know private land holdings and mansions and castles and like it, it's just outrageous yeah. and that, that's what it keeps coming back to for me to the unnecessariness. yeah okay that that is fair that's that we're very similar in that way i would be a small or republican as well you have to be careful <laughs> 
<laughs> it's a Republican. I have to. Yes, yeah. and in here in Ireland as well, I have to do that too. All right. Well, this has been a very uh, emotional and uh, I think I'm getting a headache actually from all this passion and ranting. But thank you so much, Tom, for joining me for this. If people want to find you, where where would be the best place to go? I'll do most of my arguing on Twitter, um, where it belongs. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, at American underscore bio. Direct anything you want to at me there, and I'll either ignore it or interact with it as I feel. <laughs> uh, but, Zach, this has been very uh, cathartic. Uh, always enjoyed talking to you. Always enjoy working with you. Uh, one of my best friends in podcasting. Hell yeah. Um and just it's always a pleasure and invigorating yes. whenever we get the chance to definitely talk. um so thank you so much for reaching out to me and, and asking me to be part oh of it's this. a pleasure tom thank you so much for joining me yes best podcasting friend we met in person in harvard it was a magical time i that was that's still one of the best single events i've ever yeah. attended absolutely opportunity to get lunch with you that was, yeah, was fantastic we gotta do that again if i'm ever in massachusetts or if you happen to find yourself in dublin do let me know. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, Ireland is uh, is my family's escape. Oh, cool! Plan, uh, if uh, if things go really oh, bad, that's interesting. Okay, here, so well, I can. I'll be yeah. sure to recommend a cardboard box for you guys to stay in, since that's probably all you'll be able to get <laughs> in terms of housing. Appreciate that. <laughs> no problem at all. Thanks so much, Tom, and I will talk to you soon. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.